1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Lithuania sustains a major DDoS attack. Lessons from NotPetya. Conti's brand appears to have gone into hiding. Online extortion now tends to skip the ransomware proper. Josh Ray from Accenture on how social engineering is evolving for underground threat actors. Rick Howard looks at chaos engineering. And US financial institutions conduct a coordinated cybersecurity exercise. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, June 27th, 2022. Lithuania this morning announced that it has sustained a distributed denial of service attack. Reuters quotes Lithuania's National Cybersecurity Center to the effect that further attacks of this kind are expected. They say, It is very likely that attacks of similar or greater intensity will continue in the coming days, especially in the transportation, energy, and financial sectors. The nominally hacktivist Russian group Killnet, responsible for earlier DDoS attacks against Italian targets, claimed responsibility for the incident. A group associated with Killnet, the Cyber Spetsnaz, last week threatened Lithuania with cyberattacks should it persist in its policy of restricting rail delivery of embargoed goods to Russia's non-contiguous province, Kaliningrad. It's now been five years since the GRU hit Ukraine with NotPetya pseudo-ransomware in a campaign that was marked by a degree of indifference to the damage done to other countries in the course of the attacks, It moves one to the conclusion that the international consequences of the malware weren't so much collateral damage as side benefit. CSO reviews some of the major lessons from NotPetya. The campaign showed that ransomware and wiper malware representing itself as ransomware could serve as an effective weapon, and the GRU was willing to use it as such. Adam Flatley, director of threat intelligence at Redacted, commented, it's interesting that the Russians are being a little more careful this time with their cyber attacks, but that's only constrained by their desire to be careful. The technology is still there for them to easily change the setting and let it loose if they wanted to. Computer Weekly looks at the results Anonymous has obtained so far in its Op Russia hacktivist campaign, and it finds that they've generally been more consequential than had been generally expected. Although, of course, falling short of the devastation Anonymous customarily threatens. Your Anon News tweeted, The Anonymous Collective is officially in cyberwar against the Russian government. That was hours after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The scope and sweep of the attacks, mostly defacements, doxing, and DDoS have been surprising, and potential targets of hacktivism elsewhere are considering how they might harden themselves against similar operations. Conti seems to have retired as a brand. Bleeping Computer reports that the gang shut down its data leak and negotiation sites last Wednesday, and they seem to have remained down, at least for the rest of the week. Observers read this as the retirement of the brand, not the retirement, still it's the reform of the criminals behind it. Bleeping Computer writes, some of the ransomware gangs known to now include old Conti members include Hive. Avos Locker, Black Cat, Hello Kitty, and the recently revitalized Quantum operation. Other members have launched their own data extortion operations that do not encrypt data, such as Karakurt, Blackbite, and the Bazaar Call Collective. The gang's arm attack campaign last November and December, short but intense, retrospectively looks like the brand's last big hurrah, except, of course, for its public declaration of adherence to Moscow's cause in Russia's war against Ukraine. Group IB describes arm attack as having hit some 40 organizations in the U.S. and elsewhere with noticeable effect. Assuming the Conti brand stays retired, the leading ransomware brand is now Lockbit 2.0. NCC Group's May Ransomware Report puts the leaderboard like this— LockBit 2.0, Black Basta, a rising criminal star, Hive, and the rump of a retiring Conti. Bleeping Computer reports that OnLab has noticed a trend in LockBit 2.0's attack technique. The approach is still through phishing, but the fish bait has changed. The typical LockBit come-on now consists of a bogus copyright infringement notice. To see the infringing material, the email says, The recipient should open an attached file, which carries the hook, the payload. It's not unique fish bait. The operators of both Bazaar Loader and Bumblebee have also used copyright infringement claims to induce their victims to bite. The register briefly describes a trend currently observed in ransomware attacks. Increasingly, they're skipping the ransomware. That is, they're not bothering to encrypt the victim's files. Instead, they're relying on the threat of doxing, promising to release sensitive stolen data if the ransom isn't paid. So the trend toward double extortion ransomware, encrypting data to hold them hostage but not before stealing it and then threatening to release it publicly, is now often skipping the encryption step. It used to be like kidnapping followed by blackmail. Now, more often than not, it's just blackmail. And finally, major U.S. financial institutions, motivated in part by the possibilities of cyber attack that Russia's war against Ukraine raises and at the urging of the U.S. Department of Treasury, have recently conducted a coordinated exercise designed to help them refine their defenses and their plans for coping with a cyber attack. Bloomberg reports that the exercise included J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Morgan Stanley. Bloomberg explains... It ran through five hypothetical threat levels ranging from minor assaults to a full-scale onslaught on multiple banks and critical payment systems. The exercise is regarded as showing an unusual degree of cooperation and information sharing among competitors. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and also our Chief Analyst. Rick, always great to welcome you back. Hey, Dave. So I was reading the call sheets and rundowns for our discussion this morning, and I noticed that this week's CSO Perspectives episode is the end of Season 9. Man,
2: this year is going by fast. God, I know what you mean. And we covered a lot of ground this season, too. We did a little Mm. InfoSec history. We covered the current state and future Of software bill of materials. We did some identity stuff about single sign on and two factor authentication and software defined perimeter. And we talked about the current state of intelligence sharing today. And at the end, the last episode we did was a cyber sand table exercise for the colonial pipeline attacks of 2019. And oh my goodness, that's a lot of stuff. I think you should take the rest of the year off, Rick. I, okay, <laughs> I will bring that up with my boss.
1: <laughs> so, what do you have
2: uh, in store for us in your season finale here? So, have you ever heard of a resilience program called Chaos Monkey?
1: Yes, yes, I have. That is uh, that is Netflix, right? Where they, yeah. they sort of... Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. They, they <laughs> randomly go in and like blow things up and, and to test their resilience, to make sure that their engineers have engineered in enough resilience so that basically no matter what happens, customers won't notice that that things have happened. It, 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 am I on the right track there?
2: Yeah, you know, and that's what I thought too until I did a deep dive here. And But it turns out, as with most things in cybersecurity, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Netflix and other big Silicon Valley companies like LinkedIn and Google and Microsoft and a bunch of others invented this thing called chaos engineering as an advanced resilience discipline designed to discover potential systemic weaknesses in their deployed architecture that they didn't Hmm. know about before. So chaos engineering emerged because in the last 15 years, these organizations find themselves running gigantic systems of systems with thousands of dependencies that no human can keep track of in their heads. So, chaos engineering is a response to that situation where they can run carefully controlled experiments on production systems. I mean, they are blowing stuff up here, but they want to figure out uh, all the unknown areas of weakness that they haven't discovered before. So, Hmm. in this last episode of CSO Perspectives of the Season, we do a deep dive on chaos engineering to discuss how for the right organization, it might be a useful tactic for your resilience strategy.
1: I would like to see a book or an article or something about the times when chaos engineering went horribly wrong. Wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And you you know they happen. They just don't talk about them, right? No, no, they're probably, you know, traded in, in dark shadowed corners at, uh, at industry events. You know, the, the folks who sure. know, know, but the rest of us, it's too dark a secret to spread around. It's very well, listen, true. B- before I go, uh, what is the cybersecurity term that you're covering over on the Word Notes podcast this week?
2: So this week we're talking about identity and access management or IAM for short. And, you know, Dave, I'm a little bit of a nerd and... I like to throw a little pop culture references into the discussion, mostly to entertain myself. I'm, it's not for the audience. It's mostly for <laughs> That's, me.
1: Let's be clear, Rick. It's only to entertain <laughs> yourself.
2: But go on. <laughs> so, but I got to tell you, this week I have outdone myself. I found Ooh. a way to connect my favorite Star Trek movie of all time, the 1982 movie The Wrath of Khan, okay. directly to IAM. How great is that?
1: Uh, that is great, and I uh, concur <laughs> with your excellent taste in Star Trek movies. <laughs> I think so we're if... going
2: to get lots of cards and letters about that one, but I'm yeah, okay. I'm up for well, the challenge.
1: I think it's a defensible uh, position. Not exactly a Kobayashi Maru, but uh, we'll <laughs> <laughs> live with it there. All right. Well, you can find all of this stuff over on our website, theCyberWire.com, where you can learn about CyberWire Pro. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And joining me once again is Josh Ray. He is Managing Director and Global Cyber Defense Lead at Accenture Security. Josh, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, I know you and your team spend a good amount of time tracking some of the threats that are going on in sort of that criminal underground. And I wanted to touch today, particularly on social engineering and some of the things that you all are seeing evolving there.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dave, uh, again, for having me back. We are continuing to see the professionalization of cybercrime in the underground and specifically around highly specialized areas. And we've spent a lot of time talking about things like technical exploit creation as a service, but really over the last three years and more increasingly over the past six months or so, our CTI team has observed uh, the increased availability of these socially engineering uh, as a service offerings on the underground. Hmm. And this significantly magnifies threat actor capabilities, uh, and really ensures that this threat actor uh, has maximum impact. And you know me, Dave. I'm normally pretty even keel when I hear about these types of shifts. Um, after you know being in the industry for a while, but you know after speaking to my team about this, I really believe that this change will not only significantly improve threat actor capabilities, but will be problematic for security pr- practitioners and net defenders. Mm.
1: Well, can you give us some specific examples here? I mean, you know, social engineering certainly isn't new. So what's the approach that uh, has you concerned?
0: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Uh, And I think it speaks specifically kind of to the adversary tactics and what they're doing. So threat actors, you know, are are leveraging this service um, across the uh, skills gambit. And what we're seeing is that lower skilled actors, uh, this obviously provides them a new enhanced set of capabilities that they wouldn't Otherwise, have access to, and they're investing in this as well. So, for the big groups like Akonti or Laptis, they have dedicated department for this, and they don't just have one individual. They have a team with a dedicated lead that's really responsible just for social engineering. So they're very well organized around this particular piece. Hmm. We're also seeing the threat making um, more realistic, you know, socially engineered emails. Really kind of looking at the user awareness training, I think, and pivoting their, um, their tactics as such. It's very well written, whether it's in English or French or German or Italian, because you used to be able to spot the broken English or something like that. And that was a dead giveaway. Right. But the threat has definitely kind of caught up with this and these tells that humans use to spot the suspicious email.
1: Now I, I've heard that they're they're getting their way into systems and and taking advantage of of people's like even their calendaring systems.
0: Yeah, no, this is actually fascinating and, and slightly uh, scary. I mean, and this speaks specifically to the timeliness of uh, when they launch the attacks. So they they will buy access through one of the many darknet cookie markets. Uh, you know, say facilitating facilitating access to an Outlook uh, calendar and now they have this internal visibility. So for instance, we've seen actors buy the credentials to an email account through these markets and instead of just spoofing an email, they send the phishing email from an internal email address. This is, you know, social engineering from a genuine corporate account, which is a much more effective a strategy coupled with the visibility component where you can send it when somebody's on PTO or getting ready to attend a conference or has a, you know, important business meeting come up and you know, this has been one of the things that we've used to you know educate our user base uh, and we see that that the threat is you know continuing to you know to pivot to counter these uh, user awareness trainings.
1: Are they getting better with you know being able to to use the lingo of individual organizations or have they upped their game there?
0: Yeah, that's actually one of the most fascinating things and it really complicates matters further. I mean we've observed, They've actually started to employ industry subject matter experts so that they can speak the jargon and understand the nuance of the business operations. And I like to draw the comparison like much like we you know as, as Accenture would kind of tout our industry expertise, you know they, they actually have the ability now to do that uh, in a way that um, increases the effectiveness of, uh, of the attack. Hmm. So now you have a, a threat that can leverage a highly specialized, sophisticated service. Uh, employing proper grammar across multiple languages, and then through the use of you know dedicated reconnaissance, they can target key personnel at the proper time based on their internal visibility. And with their increased industry knowledge, they make their emails much more realistic and they can send them from a valid internal account now.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, and given this new reality and how much they've stepped up, what are you recommending to people to best protect themselves?
0: Well, you got to be great at doing the basics as always. And we've talked a lot about a lot of the the technical controls, you know, such as pushing for, you know, MFA. And um, once again, you know, people are being targeted as the, the the weakest link in that chain. And more specifically, you know, high level executives and employees that have access to key internal business operations are top targets. Mm. What they post on social media And what their extended circle and family members may post on social media can be easily weaponized. So not only staying vigilant and and increasing monitoring on your own enterprise, now you have to think about how do you extend that user awareness training to that trusted circle. Uh, And we've begun to help clients think about things like monitoring in the dark net, not only to get the intelligence on these available threats uh, and capabilities, but how do you think about executive cyber protection for your key and highly visible employees as well too? So those are things that we're gonna have to do to really extend that intelligence gathering and visibility uh, in conjunction with those technical controls, I think to uh, continue to mitigate this threat. All
1: right, well, Josh Ray, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks, where all the fine podcasts are listed. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.